Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. The Pew Research Center's 2015 study on religion found that nearly 23% of adults in the United States has no religious affiliation. That's up from 16% in 2007. The Religious Landscape Study also identifies that one in five U.S. adults were raised as members of a religion but now say they have no religious affiliation. A new book, I Don't Know What to Believe, Making Spiritual Peace with Your Religion, examines this trend. I recently spoke with its author, Rabbi Ben Kamen, about the book. I think the reaction that I haven't gotten yet, uh, which would be rather loud, is from any uh, element of the organized religious community. And that will probably be coming, and that's fine with me, because I do want to stir up some respectful controversy. The reaction I've received so far, uh, the book is still relatively new out there, and it's uh, happily doing, doing quite well, is candidly, Rabbi Ben, this book speaks to me, because you, know, you we, we were talking before, you, you mentioned, and it's typical, of the schism going on in the United Methodist Church, where I think a lot of mostly very good people are, who, are, who are clergy or they're very committed as lay leaders to, uh, to God's house, as it were, really don't know how to, to reach out to, to appeal, to bring back in a lot of folks. Many of them are younger people, the so-called millennials, as we said, who, who really are looking for somewhere to alight spiritually but just aren't listening and aren't buying into what uh, they would call organized religion is offering them. So I haven't gotten any answers yet, but that's the problem. And because I happen to be a person who has served as a rabbi, I'm also an author and other things, but I mean, my, my, what I do, I'm, I'm, my ministry is, is real. I've been doing it for a long time. I've sensed some of these problems. I've heard about it. And I do feel that organized religion has essentially failed or is failing in North America. Uh, the, the, the appeal seems to be that I've offered a book here, I don't know what to believe, making spiritual peace of the religion, which perhaps ironically turns right back to the Bible, to Scripture, with some of the answers to the, this dilemma. They're in the Scripture themselves, and we can talk more about that as you wish. Sure, absolutely. You, you, you talk about the religiously disenchanted. How would you define that? Well, I think there are really a bunch of very lonely people. I think that, uh, you know, we just lost Nancy Reagan, a great lady. And um, while this is hardly a political discussion today, and, uh, I, I, I remember that President Reagan, who really had a way of tapping into uh, our lives, clearly was reelected twice, great, great majorities. And I think one reason he did it is because he understood something, and it was quoted by some of his biographers. Uh, the president, President Reagan understood that the number one problem in this country is loneliness. I, I found that uh, it was Peggy Noonan who wrote that, one of his biographers. It always struck me as being a profoundly intuitive remark about, ironically, about religion. Religion, I think, succeeds best when it recognizes that we're all really quite lonely. We're not miserable. We're not all, you know, derelicts or God forbid, suicidal or pathological, but we're, we're, we're lonely. The world has gotten more and more crowded. Uh, ironically, the more data we have through cyberspace and the constant uh, 24-hour news cycle, the more we're surrounded by data uh, and stuff, not knowledge so much, but information, 
the more we're connected, quote unquote, to other people, the more it seems we're, we're lonely. I, I find this because one of my roles is as a pastoral counselor. So um, something is not happening in the pews and from the pulpits that really is speaking to that loneliness. And I think the loneliness is partly um, reinforced, sadly, by the fact that a younger generation now really is, to some degree, post-denominational, post-racial. In other words, we've succeeded in America. The dreams of our forefathers and foremothers to make this a united country of different kinds of folks has actually come to pass. Uh, blended marriages are on the rise. They're cascading. They're accepted. They're normal. In my own community, in the Jewish community, it's some 65% <clears throat> pardon me, of marriages involving a Jewish person now marrying someone who's not Jewish. Now, I think that's an opportunity. I, I don't think we should be frightened by this, and we certainly shouldn't condemn these people. We clergy should be part of the solution, not part of the problem. We're not going to talk them out of falling in love. And I do think that God does want people to love each other. The greater and wider acceptance of people um, in the so-called alternative lifestyles, um, the gay community and so forth, you can have, one can have an opinion about these things, a political opinion, a legal opinion, one way or the other. But in terms of social, of the social opinion is that we're, we're, we're more inclusive than not. So the people in the pews, especially the young people, what they feel is that they're more accepting and, in fact, more spiritual and more tolerant than the established figures they're listening to and talking to, who in many ways, not because they're bad guys and bad ladies, it's because they're just not ready to understand it. They're talking to people who aren't listening because they're not talking the same language. So that what I'm, what I'm writing about in this book, I don't know what to believe, is a very glaring spiritual gap between those who are leading and those who are supposed to be listening. You, you talk about the, the spiritual gap, and we, we, we mentioned the uh, um, the gay community. We're here, in a, we're here in a university setting, very diverse, much diversity as you as you as you might imagine. And I heard a conversation mm -hmm. once taking place um, just outside of the sanctuary in, in my own church. So I, I witnessed the conversation that a young gay couple, very what I would call very spiritual engaging in a conversation with, um, I guess, what maybe we would consider more fundamentalist, traditional in terms of their religious views, that basically said, well, you know, you really don't have God's love because you're in sin, and your only salvation is if you stop doing uh, what you're doing, and uh, I'm sorry, but you're going to hell. That just seemed to me like, oh, great, and we want to welcome these individuals into our church. Yeah. How do you have that discussion? Yeah, well, I, I, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. This is the whole point of the book. That's a bunch of nonsense, and that's also very, very uh, harmful, and it's not the message of Scripture. The problem with Scripture is we think it's one unified book. There, there are two things you've got to start with, and, and I make a case for this uh, in my book. I don't know what to believe. The Scripture was not written by God. It's better than that. It was not written by God. It is better than that. It was written by men and women across many, many generations and centuries who were inspired by God, who were hurting for God, who were yearning for some spiritual answer, just like the people in the Scripture are. If you have a problem with the Bible, I say keep reading the Bible, but don't skip over those beautiful parts that don't involve miracles, which may or may not have happened. I hope they did. They're wonderful stories. 
but they involve the smaller moments, like when Moses has a crisis of faith, when he climbs Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and people tend to focus on the miracle that God wrote the commandments on stone using God's own finger and so forth. That's all fine and good. But what matters to me is that somebody went up to a mountain, somebody had an experience and came down and told other people, you know what, we got to have some great laws. We've got to respect each other's property. We've got to respect our marriages. We can't steal. We can't murder. You know why? Because that's all they had seen in Egypt. That's what Scripture is all about. I like the Scripture when I read of this small passage in Genesis where a young man named Jacob sees a woman named Rachel and is so in love with her that the Bible tells us. I'm not making this up here. It's, it's in there, but Jeff. It's, you know, he says, the Bible says he wept from how much he loved her. I've been there. I know what it's like to fall in love. It's a beautiful thing. And so when I read things like that, or when I read about the fact that David the king, the messianic um, ancestor of Jesus Christ, uh, who wrote the most magnificent poetry in world history, the book of Psalms, understood every nuance of human emotion, was also a really, really serious serial adulterer who actually sent one of his generals into a hopeless battle because he, David, was having a relationship with that man's wife. I don't celebrate that, but I celebrate the fact that the Bible is telling me that people are real. They're flawed. I mean, I read the newspaper every day, and I read this stuff, and I understand that's human nature. I may not like it. So in the, both, in the glorious moments and the most difficult moments, the Bible actually is much more about people with their joys and their sorrows, their great attributes and their miserable failings than it is about miracles. The miracles, that kind of stuff, is maybe 8% of Scripture. So that's what, that's what the preachers are talking about and trying to use that stuff to get themselves authority and power. Now, I'm sure they mean well, but people aren't buying into that. You can get a miracle on the Internet anytime you want. Just go on the Internet. You can find all kinds of things that are <laughs> dazzling and wonderful. But it's not, it's, it's not biblical. But when you read a story, a beautiful story written by a man or a woman that relates to your life, then you can grasp the Scripture. You can say, that, that's just like me. I'm lonely like that. I, I, I lusted like that. Uh, I, I hope nobody committed a crime like some of these people did in the, in the Scripture, but we see that we also, when, we're, when we have evil inclinations, when we're thinking about doing something bad, we can find a home in Scripture because these people are like us. We're missing the boat on how magnificent a human drama the Scripture is. So just as I say in the book, the Scripture is actually a library. You don't reject the whole library because you don't like some of the books in it. You go get the book that you want that moves you, it speaks to you. You still support the library. It was written by human beings inspired by God. And when we do it that way, we can make it, we can, we're more comfortable with it, and it relates to us. And that is what we need to believe, that men and women struggling with God, loving God, feeling rejected by God, all that stuff is the real story of human life. Is there a difference, or how would you describe the difference between religion and spirituality, and does that have something to say about the current state that we, we see ourselves in, in terms of organized religion right now, at least here in the West? That's a, that's a great question. I really appreciate it. I would say, you know, uh, to, to kind of melt it right down, I think you, you need them both. But religion is law. Spirituality is love. If you, if you have all spirituality, that can feel very great. But people still want some ritual. They want some structure. If you have only law, 
as in religion, then you are immediately making the faith vulnerable to the kinds of failings that sadly we do see. I, hey, my cop, the rabbis do it, the evangelicals do it. Um, certainly we know that many of the, uh, the leadership people in the Muslim world, to the great tragic consequences to the Muslim world itself, are doing it. They're taking the non-spiritual, just the ecclesiastic, the theological legislation that they see, or they, they discern that they see in Scripture, which is part of it, and applying it 100%. And that is scaring people. People are dying because of it. And the general reaction is, this isn't for me. I want peace. I want love. So you've you, you got to have a you, you got to find the answer somewhere in between between this this the law and love, and then we will begin to find our way back to each other in in God's church today. Do you think that if we if we look back? I was recently at a seminar. We looked back that in 1960 they looked at what the church quote unquote the church was back in the 60s and how mm-hmm. dramatically. It has changed how everything else has changed, evolved, and progressed. But the church is still, in many ways, what it was in in 1960. And I thought it was interesting. You talk about about um, being church as opposed to doing church. And I think if we're to make disciples, then you know. Being church is more than just you know, doing church on on Sunday or on Saturday. Yeah, it's on more Wednesday than going through the motions. It's more than uh, going through the motions. So yeah. wh- where is that disconnect? It's going through the emotions, I would say. You know, we have to apply the emotions that are in Scripture. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll find ourselves in a motion that's dynamic and fluid and wonderful. We don't want to obey—look, you can't get—people are not going to obey anymore. We, we, everybody has the power to do whatever they want. I mean, you know, that's why there's a feeling of chaos. I mean, I don't think that the Internet is such an all-wonderful thing. The information is great, but it's making us all into uh, people who decide we can do whatever we want, and that's unfortunate. So we're, we're not – the attention span of the American people, there isn't one, okay? So uh, we have to account for that and uh, to allow people to think. Religion should be telling us not what to think as much as it's telling us to think. That's what's going on in Scripture. People are responding to crises, national crises, personal crises, and they're working things out. That's what it's right there. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't have to go far from the very Bible. People are throwing at us. Talk about the Bible. Don't throw it at people, and it's, you, you'll get a better response. Is with your experience and as you as you kind of look at the at the at the religious landscape, so to speak, are we as organized religions, getting better at making this transition, or at least recognizing where, what will be or is the actually the largest population segment uh, of our country, where they are spiritually and religiously? I would say that we are to a degree, because uh, churches and synagogues and mosques are becoming creative and inventive. They're, they're looking at membership uh, not only as uh, something that you buy or, you know, just give something to, to, to a, to a, uh, into a pot of money and so forth, but they're, they're, they're trying alternative programming that's very, very interesting. Uh, they're making it more social. 
they are reaching out uh, to uh, people who generally were banished uh, because of, of creed, of uh, sexual uh, uh, identification and things like that. Uh, but it's it, so at this moment it's 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 a little bit too little uh, too late. I mean, the, the, if you when one says the church, I often think of the Catholic Church. Uh, I have deep friendship roots in the Catholic Church, including in the Vatican. Um, so I'm talking about my friends. But uh, they, they can't. The, the church is having a crisis where they they don't have priests. I mean, I, I've been to enough funerals in Catholic churches uh, or visiting for happy reasons, and I find in the pews regularly these little flyers. I pick them up and they say, listen, you really ought to consider a career in the priesthood. So one of the problems that's happening in the church, and that's also true in my community and other communities as well, is that people are inspired to become um, clergy. So the, the, the talent pool for people who really find the clergy, as I do, absolutely fascinating and creative, a privilege. It is a privilege to look through the windows of human lives, to marry their children, to bury their dead to name their children. It's a great honor. Um, that talent pool is, is really is, 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 is dwindling, and that, that's a problem as well. So uh, is, it, is, it, is it getting better for the church? Well, the fact that we're having this discussion on, on your program uh, and, and your part of the country, I think, is a great indication. Because I, I'm not angry at anybody, and I'm not a rebel. I'm just try, I'm taking a look at the scripture with, with a loving, critical eye and saying, you know what? There's great stuff in there. Don't try so hard, men, women. It's right there. Bring it back to the stories of the people in the in the, in the Bible. These these are, these are the greatest stories ever told. But but I think many of my colleagues and I used to do this too. We mistake the miracles, the cataclysmic events, as not just great stories, but as events which give me the power to scare the you, the you know what out of people. Well, people they get scared when they go to the movies now and see the previews of, of, of coming attractions. We've we got enough fear going on. Let's bring it back to what the Bible was. It begins in a garden. It moves from there into a story of several generations of Abraham's family, marriages, births, big disappointments, bad marriages, children being banished. Then it moves on to the greatest freedom story in the history of the world. You know, Moses was not a messianic figure. He was a guy, not unlike my hero, Martin Luther King, who didn't want the job, but he found himself... It's in, it was in his hands. And so he, he, he led uh, Moses now, you know, went into Egypt, and he stood up for the greatest value that's espoused in the Bible. The number one value in the Bible actually is human freedom. The entire uh, Hebrew scripture, particularly the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which are beloved by Jews and Christians equally and alike, is a story of that slavery is wrong, and freedom is right. Not the creation story is the greatest story. Uh, not the story of building the sanctuary. The number one value that, that pervades scripture is freedom. So why would we use the scripture then, which is a freedom manual, to enslave people into some despotic liturgical formula that a few men are still holding on to because they want power? I'm concerned about that. I wanted to circle back around to something because it, it, I know it's a discussion that I, I've heard in, in, in United Methodist Church. I've heard it in, in some of my, my good friends that are, mm -hmm. uh, that, are, that, are, that are in the Catholic Church as, as, as well. And that's back to this issue, and I think it was a distinction that you made that I found really interesting, that, that you equated that religion is law and spirituality is love. And, and there are those that say, well, we, you know, we, mm -hmm. we have to have 
we have to have the law. I mean, that's just the way it is. You ha- and we have to con- conform to the to the law. And the love part or the spirituality part will grow when people conform conform to the law. And it just to me that seems it seems counter a little counterproductive. But is there... right, so the opposite is true in my opinion? I'm sorry, I just, it's the other way around. No, no, I, and, I mean... and and I think that's what I and that and that's what I found interesting is that there still seems to be. Uh, at least from my perspective, with with looking at some of the organized religions and interacting with some of them, that there is just this so tenacity to hang on to what is written in the law. I mean, you look at the the Book of Discipline, and and I mean, it, it reads like a legal textbook. And I don't know how yeah. Yeah. I don't know how the how the conference <laughs> gets through all of that without having attorneys on every on every discussion. Uh, how do we reconcile that, or or or? Or do you think it's possible to kind of have that that paradigm shift in how we how we oh, use it's, it's, it's definitely possible. First of all, we rectify it by recognizing something that's very hard to recognize, and there's nothing wrong with being you know being candid with ourselves. The number one problem in religion today, like it is in so many things, is something I call insecurity. Insecurity. If I'm a priest or a minister or an imam, and I'm a rabbi, and I'm out there in the pulpit and I'm handling people. And I'm saying things to people that change their personal status, for example, in a marriage, or I'm standing with people uh, before the open grave of their ancestors, and in many cases, you know, unfortunately I've been there, of their child. This nation is suffering a teenage suicide epidemic that's unbelievable. That's much more important than some meeting of some synagogue council about what's kosher and what's not kosher. I mean, that's nonsense. we got a crisis. Uh, we got people that, that, that we... That either they're so poor that they they have no hope, or they're so rich that they don't know what hope is. So we got to sit down and realize, we in the clergy, that we are putting people, men and women, in the in the pulpits who are fundamentally, not to use a pun, they're insecure, and that is they're they're doing this job because they want some avenue to express their angst. They want to uh, propel themselves into position of authority. Now, authority is okay if you're doing it like Moses did in favor of human liberty. Authority is wondrous if you did it like Jesus did, in favor of the triumph of the human soul. Authority is terrific if you do it like Muhammad actually did. Yes, the original Muhammad, the most inclusive religious figure in world history, because when he created Islam, the real Islam, the Islam that is still out there, that's being corrupted by the jihadists, when he created Islam, in the seventh century, he said first and foremost, our predecessors, Judaism and Christianity, are both valid and wonderful. We're building on this. That was a guy who was not insecure. He didn't try simply to create his own thing to make himself big. Religion right now is, and Pope Francis is an extraordinarily wondrous exception to this. Religion now is being run by men and women who feel small, and therefore try to make themselves large by putting categories on other people, making them feel small. That's the problem. That is a problem. It's, that's not problem number one. Problem number two is the scripture is totally being misread. It is not a book of miracles. It's a book of human events, and it's powerful literature. Not a word has changed in it, not one word. In, in centuries and centuries and centuries, which means the stories are terrific. We want stories. Stories feed our loneliness and make us comfortable. You know, every time a group of Christians get together 
at Christmas, for example, what are they doing? Yeah, they may go to Mass. I hope they do. Uh, they exchange presents, probably too much of that stuff. We have the same problem with Hanukkah. But, but what they're really doing is telling each other stories. They're visiting with their, with their parents, their grandparents. They're recalling simpler times. This is a nourishment against the hunger of loneliness. When we in the Jewish community celebrate Passover, we gather at a table, we have a festive meal, and, you know, there's a certain way to do it, and nobody really follows the exact order and so forth, because what's really happening is that somebody's remembering, oh, my God, Grandma, that chicken soup of yours, the, the very smell of it sends me back to a simpler time, and parents are visiting with the children again, and um, this, is, this is when religion is blending with spirituality. This is when the ritual or the law is mixing in comfortably and wonderfully with the love. You got to have them both. You know, people in the Jewish community, they tell me, oh, I went to, you know, so-and-so's Seder at Passover, there's a ritual meal. And all they did for four hours is recite all the passages. Well, the guy who led it probably was very happy. The other people were bored out of their minds, and the kids fell asleep. So I'm not saying the ritual is wrong, but I'm saying it was wrongly applied. Relax, preachers. Relax, teachers. Let's, let's, let's bring some excitement into it. Let's talk about the Bible as what it is. A book of stories. It's, it's the diary of human beings interacting with God. So I, I think a person who is not insecure, who is in a pulpit, who is, doesn't have the need to project himself or herself, but to bring the stories forward and to ask people to remember what it was like with their parents, is going to succeed. And therefore, the people that he or she is preaching to will love that building, that particular church, that institution. Once they start to love it again and feel it's a safe place to be and a place that recalls great memories, they'll consider the law again. You can't legislate human love. You've got to win it. And that's when religion will work again. I think we'll get there. Look, the Catholic Church, with, with its many, many problems, it's not the same church that it was. You mentioned the 1960s, you know, 50, 60 years ago. The changes in the Catholic Church are mind-boggling. The acceptance of Judaism, for example, the acknowledgement by the Catholic Church of its duplicity, yes, its duplicity with the Nazis in many ways during World War II, is phenomenally courageous. I mean, Vatican II is one of the most astonishing documents ever in world history. Nobody should blanket condemn the Catholic Church because they happen to have problems uh, in the professional circles. It's still a remarkable institution. The Sisters of Charity, the greatest and most tender arm of the Catholic Church is unparalleled. We Jews have nothing like the Sisters of Charity. We talk a lot about it, and we do social justice, but what the Catholics are doing to, to feed the hungry and to heal the sick to the Sisters is phenomenal. So it's all an, a, an evolving process, and it works best when you combine a lot of love with some law and go forward gently. That's Rabbi Ben Kamen. His new book is I Don't Know What to Believe. It's published by Central Recovery Press. More information about the book is also available on his website, bencamin.com. That's Ben Kamen, K-A-M-I-N.com. In the author's voice is a listener-supported service of WSIU Radio and Southern Illinois University. I'm Jeff Williams.